Father, it's such a, such a privilege to be able to come before you and to know that we can come to your throne room, the very throne room of grace, as you call it, and uh, seek for your favor and seek for your grace on everything that happens this morning, both here at GBC and at camp for our students as, as um, Pastor Smed brings the word. I pray for those young souls. We just pray that, um, that your spirit would bring um, great clarity. As he talks about eternity, as he speaks about eternal realities and what it would mean to be consumed with the desire to please you, whether in the body or out of the body, as they think about what it would mean to be pleasing to you for an eternity, as they think about what it would mean to live a life now that would mean uh, standing before you without regret, I pray that your spirit would bring great conviction. Apply that truth, Lord, with very specific application. There are, there are some students who know you and love you and would find great encouragement as this truth would help them live a life that would be pleasing to you and honoring to you. And no doubt there are many students, many of our children, who don't know you. And so we pray that you would cause their hearts to tremble, to fear, and even this morning as they end in verse 21, that they would consider the fact that you made your son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might have your righteousness. And for any of our, for any of our young people, regardless if they're in sixth grade, regardless if they're heading off to college, we just pray that you would save any of those who do not know you. Uh, it's certainly the heart cry of every parent. It's the cry of every small group leader and all the volunteers in the youth ministry. And it's our deepest longing to see you glorify your name through the salvation of, of the young generation in this church. And so, Lord, uh, this morning as we turn our attention to your word and as we one more time think about this topic of the fear of you, I do pray that your word would, would uh, prepare us to fear you more. Help us to see a side of you that we may not often think about Help us to think about um, the connection of uh, this positive motivation of fearing you and how it actually produces more and more effective, vigorous, aggressive pursuit of obedience. Uh, it does not produce a paralyzing fear. It should never produce a hesitation or a negligence or a lethargy. But give us such a fear of you that it would, trans that it would transcend every other affection, every other notion, every other concern, um, that we might be consumed with um, pursuing our greatest good by fearing you. And so, Lord, just thank you. We can begin our, our Lord's Day with just pointing our hearts to you in prayer. Thank you for answering these prayers, even though uh, we haven't experienced the answer. We, we thank you in advance, because these are prayers that are in line with your character. And so we pray that you glorify your great name through your word this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, so far, we have studied the fear of God um, 
in several ways. First of all, if you remember, if you've been here through the whole, the whole series of the equipping hours, we've, we've had a few different studies that have kind of covered a pretty broad gamut. First of all, we talked about why the fear of God might seem like such a foreign notion. It can seem like a foreign notion because too often it's, it's just easy in the church to domesticate God, and we, we kind of buddy up to God. We, we view him as our best friend. Uh, we, we, we start to take something that is entirely other than us, entirely glorious and terrifying and awful in praises, as Moses writes in Exodus 15, and turn him into something that's just merely um, friendly and casual, like turning a Bengal tiger into a house pet. And so that's really why I'm convinced that the fear of God is just always going to remain timeless because of our innate tendency to just in, in, strive for whatever is most comfortable and to strive for whatever is most casual. And the Lord is not something or someone we can take casually. And so the second study we did was what is the fear of the Lord? And we looked at what is it essentially? What's, what's the makeup of the fear of the Lord? What's it look like? And here's my summary of that, if you remember. It's, it's a fear that drives a sinner to instinctively cling to God, to tremble at his word, to obey him and love him, and to be consumed with pleasing him. It's not a fear that drives one away, it's a fear that drives one towards. And so we cling to God, we, we go after God, we pursue him, because if we fear him, we know he's our only hope and our only help. Next, we learned that the fear of the Lord comes only from the word. And that third study probably could quite possibly be the most important of all of them, uh, the most foundational for all of them. If you don't fear the Lord as you ought to, and trust me, you don't, I don't, none of us do, then the Word of God is the only instrument, the only vehicle that can produce and sustain and increase our fear of the Lord. There's no circumstance that could give us a fear of the Lord Circumstances can cause us to fear. Circumstantially, the Israelites, if you remember, they saw the manifestation of God on Mount Sinai and they were scared, but they did not have the virtue of the fear of the Lord. And so that might have been perhaps the most important of the studies. And then since then, we've been, we've been looking at various aspects, uh, applications, if you will, kind of practical outworkings of how the fear of the Lord intersects with our thinking and our practical living. We, did, uh, we looked at the fear of the best of men as the fear of man at best talking about the danger of the fear of man, particularly fear of godly men in the church. Um, that's very, very common. We talked about what it means to fear God in your marriage. And then last time we talked about what it means to fear God as a, as a parent. Well, this morning I want to kind of wrap this up by looking at an aspect of God that connects to why we fear God, and it really kind of ties off that notion of why the fear of God um, produces such vigorous activity and not passivity. I want you to begin with Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is a great place to begin. We've already looked at this, but it's been a while. Earlier on in the series, we looked at this because here is a story where Jesus tells a parable. And the man in this parable is scared. His fear is not the virtuous fear. His fear is the the fear of consequence, and the fear of punishment. It's the parable of the talents. And if you remember, he tells that parable in Matthew 25. It goes from verse 14 all the way through to verse 30. And so he gives out 
talents. Five talents to one servant, two talents to another, and one talent to the last. And then he gives an accounting of all of the servants who, who come and show them, show the Lord what, what they did with his talent, with his resources. Verse 22, we're going to pick it up with the third servant. I'm sorry, verse 24 is the, the, where we pick it up with the third servant. And Jesus says this, And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. So there's the fear, but not the, the virtuous fear of the Lord. This is the sinful fear. I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See? You have what's yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly, by the time you get to the end of the parable, you realize that this is not just a, a chastening, a, a, a parable that's to describe a parallel between God the Father chastening a child for his holiness. The way the parable ends, this is clearly an unbeliever who was serving in the Lord's house, who then is thrown out and cast into outer darkness. That kind of sinful fear, the slavish fear, uh, is, is characteristic of the unbeliever. And yet we've been talking about this virtuous fear of the Lord that actually causes you to instinctively cling to the Lord and it produces fervent, zealous activity. The sinful fear produces lethargy, negligence, passivity. Oh, I didn't want to do anything because I didn't want to mess it up. And so he sits on his talent. And the master just simply says, just put it in the bank. At least you've got some minimal interest. At least. But his sinful fear kept him from acting. If you remember, I told the uh, story about my, my wife and I on our first anniversary. We went hiking in Yosemite. And if you remember that story, I pictured, maybe if you can just picture it, if you've ever been to Yosemite, um, it's very easy to imagine if you even haven't been. We hiked to the edge of the river above the Yosemite Valley that turns into Yosemite Falls. And it's, a, it's about a half mile, half vertical mile straight down, about 1,300 foot fall, just a sheer cliff. And I described seeing the valley open up on the other side and, and watching Half Dome get more, come, come into perspective the closer I got to the edge and then Bridalvale Falls. And then finally, like standing like right next to the edge, I could just barely start to see the lodge in the bottom of the valley below. And then I got on my hands and knees and I got on my stomach and then I just mustered up enough nerve to peek my eyeball over the edge. And there's this element of the fear of the Lord that's never safe. But it is awesome. It's incomparable. And what is it about this never safe fear that is awesome and terrifying all at once that connects to this vigorous, aggressive pursuit of activity and zeal and obedience and yieldedness and energy being poured out to the glory of God? 
What is it that separates it from the sinful fear that produces lethargy and, and a scared response of, I don't want to offend, I don't want to mess it up, I'm not going to do anything? Well, my title this morning is Fear God Because He Is. And then my question would be, what would you fill in the blank naturally there? Fear God because He is. My knee-jerk reaction, if I were in your shoes, probably would be righteous or a judge. The Bible says to his children, fear God because he's good. Fear God because he's good. The goodness of God is why you ought to fear him. You ought to fear God because he is that good. He is so good. His goodness is infinite. The way and the the means and with which he uses to show goodness on his children cannot be calculated. And it's all over the scriptures. Let me just show you a few quick examples. Grab your Bibles and let's go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 is a good place to start. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and and this is just thrilling to go back to some of these, these verses in Deuteronomy. We looked at a lot of Deuteronomy connecting to the fear of the Lord, particularly in that study when we looked at the, how, the, how the fear of the Lord is produced by the word. But let me show you a few examples where the fear of the Lord is connected to um, um, our goodness. First of all, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 24. Deuteronomy 6.24, this is one that comes up all the time. I appeal to this all the time in parenting. My boys have probably all heard this quoted at some time or another. Deuteronomy 6.24, so the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Moses is telling the people, look, fear the Lord. You need to fear the Lord for your good. It's in your best interest to fear the Lord. God is that good. He's so good. He's so kind that if you feared him, it's in your best interest. You can do no better for yourself than to fear God. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 16. In the wilderness, he fed you with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you might say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. And so he had to bring them through the wilderness so that they could not possibly have claimed victory in themselves. And he had to sustain them in the wilderness where there was no food, where there was no drink, so that he could miraculously provide for them. So that at the end of it all, they would not be able to say, I did this. They would say, God did this. And it's going to be for the nation when the conditions of the covenant are fulfilled so good for them. It's to test Israel to do good for them in the end, it says in verse 16. Look also at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13. Deuteronomy 10, verse 13. 
Uh, sorry, let's pick it up. That's in the middle of the sentence. Let's pick it up in verse 12, and then we'll get to verse 13. Follow with me. And verse 12 says, Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? And notice, remember the five synonyms here. We've looked at this before, but here's five synonyms, um, and one of them is fear. So, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and set his statutes, which I am commanding you today, for your good. Wow. Three times in four chapters, Moses is telling the nation, it's for your good. Obey, it's for your good. God is working for your good. Keep his commandments for your good. By the way, if you thought, man, that sounds like some sort of strange hedonistic appeal for me to pursue my own good, kind of like an end around, an end around about, around for, for obedience to be done for the glory of God, so just do it for your own good. No, the problem is not that it's not for our Good. The problem with the end around, the hedonistic approach to obedience, is when I do it for what I determine is my own good. It's still going to require faith. Because trust me, believer, if you fear the Lord, if you fear the Lord and you walk in the fear of the Lord, then whatever the outcome is your good. If you fear the Lord, you know God knows what is your good. You know he knows better for you than you do. So the question is not, do you do this for what you think is for your own good? The, the point is, it's a fact that if you fear the Lord, it is for your good. But it still requires faith. Are you going to trust the Lord that the outcome is your good? He's radically committed to your holiness he predestined you from the foundation of the world. If you're in Christ this morning, he, found, he predestined you from the foundation of the world to conform you to the image of his son. That is your good. Being conformed to Christ's image is your good. So fear the Lord. He'll get you there. There's nothing else that could be better for you. So here's what I want to do this morning. We've got a few minutes here to look at this topic. <clears throat> and... Um, I could have preached an exposition, I suppose, on about any one of these passages, but I wanted to just kind of present before you some of these rich passages. So especially since it's an equipping hour, I thought it just affords a, you know, a little bit more of a topical approach, a little more topical study. Um, and I want to just grab some of these texts. But here, here's kind of an outline for you. I want to just, first of all, um, in this idea that fear God because he's good, the first thing I want to do is I want to prove that God's goodness is the cause of fear. God's goodness is the cause of fear. And then secondly, I want to prove that God's goodness is the result of fear. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg, cart and horse type of dynamic because what you find in the scriptures is that when you see how good God is, that actually promotes the fear of the Lord. And it's also true that when you fear the Lord, you get God's goodness. So it is a cart and the horse type of dynamic, and I'm going to show you some passages on both sides of that equation. So first of all, let me just prove to you that God's goodness is the cause of fear. 
uh, give me one text that we've already looked at, and the rest of these are going to be new to this study. The, the repeat text is Psalm 130, verse 4. This one's so important, I didn't want to skip it. Psalm 130, verse 4, we've looked at this before, but let's look at it again. Psalm 130. Remember what he says in verse 3, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? I mean, if God took a mark and a written record into the court of justice and he marked down all iniquities, no one could stand. That's the answer to the implied question there. But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. And that's that purpose statement. It's just profound. Because there is such a thing as forgiveness with God, the outcome of that reality is the possibility of, of, of fearing him. That's a struggle. That's a challenging verse. <clears throat> it's very clear. If I thought of the fear of God in the sense of fear of punishment, this verse makes no sense. If my fear of the Lord is simply I'm terrified of standing in account and giving an account for my life because he's not pleased with me, then this verse makes no sense. It doesn't apply to me. But for the person who's walking through life, who's basking in the fact that there is forgiveness with God, the fact that he is worshiping a forgiving God, a God who forgives iniquity and transgressions and sins, uh, he, he's abounding in loving kindness, he says all of those things about himself. Because I'm worshiping that kind of God, and as I'm walking through life, and there's a very real possibility of relationship with him, because forgiveness is a reality with this God, then you better believe that's going to produce fear. Suddenly, I'm now navigating life, watching where I step, because I want relationship with him. Forgiveness is possible. He's a forgiving God. I want to keep, I want to keep this thing going. I want a relationship with him. And so the fear of the Lord, his goodness by forgiving sins, is the cause of fear. I couldn't fear God in the virtuous sense if it wasn't for his goodness in this fashion, particularly in his salvation and forgiveness of sins. But let's look at a few other, a few other passages that we haven't looked at yet. Let's go back to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. Psalm 67, verse 7. I love how this psalm ends. Listen to this. 67, 7. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. God blesses his people so that everyone could fear him. And the idea here is that when God's people are healthy, when they are walking by faith, when they are pursuing holiness, and God shows his blessing to his people, the entire inhabited world is going to see the difference. And they're going to say, wow, look at the people whose God is Yahweh who wrote the scriptures. The people who worship that God, they are so blessed. We would be idiots not to do the same. That's evangelism right there. That's global evangelism by virtue of how good God is to his people. That he would bless his people to the degree that everyone who watches the people of God would say, wow, 
this God is so infinitely good. See, the fallen mind cannot imagine a God as good as God. The fallen mind is guilty. The fallen mind has a fouled up conscience. The fouled up mind can come up with an, a, a wrathful God. That's why all the pagan religions have means of trying to alleviate God's wrath and they have certain sacrifices or certain things that you avoid or certain things that you give up or certain things that you destroy or certain um, sacrifices that you can make to try to appease this angry God who their conscience tells them you are guilty and you know it. But no fallen mind ever comes up with a God who's as good as the God of the scriptures. And he says that uh, that God's going to bless his people and he blesses us so that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Of course, this is only ultimately realized in Christ's earthly reign, this verse. And let me show that to you in, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 33. And this is, one, this is such a profound prophecy. Um, Jeremiah 33 is a prophecy of the restoration when the branch, the Yahweh, the Lord, our righteousness, when he comes back and when he fulfills Um, the new covenant at a national level with the nation of Israel. So he's talking about what he's going to do for the for the nation, for the city of Jerusalem, for the for Mount Zion itself. And so we're going to pick it up in verse six. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I will heal them. I mean, this is right on the heels of talking about how he's, he's brought um, judgment on them because of their sin, and he's hidden his face from them in verse 5. Now he's saying, I'm going I'm to heal the city and the nation. I'm going I'm to bring to it health and healing. I will heal them. I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I mean, this is the eradication of disease. This is the eradication of warfare. There's no more medical community. There's no more military. No more police force. Verse 7, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel, and I will rebuild as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. Verse 9, it will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for it. What could be better than to have Christ reigning as the dictator over your nation? That is going to produce such a profound economic prosperity, military peace, and quality of living that every pagan nation will peer over the borders and look with longing and say, wow, what a God they have. Look how good he is to his people. The fear of God is the outcome of God's goodness. He's so good that people fear him and ought to fear him because of his goodness. Let's look at another example. First of all, well, one more example for the sake of time. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12. <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 12, we have Samuel. Um, 
verse 24. Here is a statement of Samuel to Saul, and he says that uh, the Lord's not going to abandon his people. He's addressing the nation um, because they've just made Saul king, and he's, he says he's not going to abandon the nation because of his great name. Verse 23, he says to Israel, Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in the good and right way. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, because consider what great things he has done for you. Samuel is now preaching and telling the nation of Israel, you should fear God because look how good he's been to you. The goodness of God produces the fear. And so that's, Four good examples. There's more. We're going to move on. Four good examples that prove God's goodness is the cause of fear. I want to quick, quickly switch and start looking at this other side of the equation. The other side of the equation is I want to prove to you that God's goodness is the result of fear. In other words, when you fear God, the result of that is you get God's goodness. To those who fear God, they get God's goodness in a very special way. Let's start by looking at Psalm 31, verse 19. Psalm 31, verse 19. We were joking the other day in staff about um, people who, were, who maybe forgot their Bible and they were using the Bible wall out back. This is one of those uh, lessons where if you're using the Bible wall out back, you're probably burning some calories. So I appreciate you keeping up with me. We're turning, some, turning a lot of pages here. Psalm 31, verse 19. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you. I mean, he describes God's goodness being stored up in a vat, being stored up in a massive container, and he's just waiting to open up the portal at the bottom and just drain it all out on the head of the person who fears him. An inexhaustible supply. How great is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought... That means worked for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. I mean, God, God's goodness is, is dumped out upon the person who fears him. It's the outcome of fear. Let's look at another one in Psalms. Look at Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And again, I'm not showing you so many different texts because I believe that you're going to be unconvinced. But it's only because of the richness of seeing it again and again and again. Psalm 103, verse 11 to 13. David writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. I mean, this is such a familiar uh, phrase. We, we, we read it, we recite it, we sing it, but then all of a sudden we start thinking about it. Man, this means that his loving kindness is great toward those who fear him. His loyal loving kindness is massive to the people who fear him. So fear him because what you get is God's great and massive loving kindness. That's the, that's the point. That's the structure of the, the cause and effect relationship. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 
God's compassion is dumped out in magnanimous amounts in an immeasurable quality and quantity on those who fear him. Those who don't fear him, they don't receive that compassion. God is infinitely compassionate regardless of who's, on the, who's walking the face of the planet. But it's only those who fear him to whom he shows compassion. He shows compassion like a father to his children. Let's look at Proverbs 22, verse 4. Very simple, um, very simple axiom, a very sim- simple proverb here. Solomon records that the reward, so he's going to talk about the reward of, of um, humility and the fear of the Lord. What's the reward for humility? What's the reward for fearing God? Well, in verse 4, he says, the reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Riches, honor, and life. I mean, when you fear God, that's what God gives you. That's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the reward. Now, again, the problem comes when we start imagining that we know best what riches and what kind of life, and we start making delineations about what God's goodness looks like in light of a verse like this, what kind of honor we want. That's got to be defined by God, but he certainly gives that. That's the reward for humility and for those who fear him. Now, let's go look. I want to show you one more. We're going to go back to Jeremiah. We're going to back to the same prophecy because what's so sweet about Jeremiah is he shows us in the same prophecy that the fear of God causes fear and the, the uh, I'm sorry, the fear of God is, is, uh, produces or, or, or earns God's goodness and he also shows us that God's goodness causes fear. So now I want to go back to Jeremiah 32. Uh, right before the, the, the section that we just read in this previous prophecy, He's still talking about the new covenant, and he's still talking about the coming of the Messiah. And let's pick it up in verse um, 36. We need to at least get to 39 here. So let's pick it up at the beginning of the paragraph. Jeremiah 32, verse 36. Now therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of the lands to which I have driven them in my anger, in my wrath and in my great and in great indignation and i will bring them back to this place and make them dwell in safety they shall be my people and i will be their god and i will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always now that's profound because he's bringing them out of out of exile, into the promised land, and the, full, the fulfillment of this uh, return to the land in safety involves a relationship that's recognizable as them being his people and him being their God. And in that moment of this fulfillment of the new covenant, I will give them one heart and one way, one inner drive, one inner soul, one inner passion, one inner motive, and one practice one way that they'll walk. And the result of that is that they will fear God always. But notice that's not the end. It's so that they can fear me always, and then the result of the fear of God is for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I'm going to give them this heart. 
I'm going to give them this practice for their own good. That's why I'm doing it. Wait, why, why would you fulfill these promises? Why would you peel back blindness? Why would you expose human hearts to their need? Why would you forgive sin? Why would you establish a relationship with sinners? And why would you set them on a straight and narrow course as you've described and as you've laid out in your word by the power of your spirit to make them accomplish something they could never have done on their own? Why, why would you do that? For their good. Isn't that staggering, believer? You think about what, what's in the heart of God? I mean, don't you think that this could have just been a whole lot easier if we didn't get involved <laughs> for God's perspective? I want to make a name for myself. It's mm, a lot of work. But he does it for our good. It's overwhelming. It is absolutely overwhelming that he does this for our good. God's goodness is the cause of fear, and God's goodness is the result of fear. Now, here's the last thing I want to do. We've got a few minutes left. I want to look at um, a couple of truths about this fear of God, particularly the fear of God, not just in general, but the fear of God because he's good. Fearing God because he's good. There's two truths that I want to draw out here. First of all, when you fear God because he's good, this transcends every other fear. And I want to spend a little bit of time here in Psalm 34. Let's go to Psalm 34. When you fear God because he's good, that kind of fear transcends every other fear. So according to Psalm 34, verses 4 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 11, God delivers us from every fear by bringing us to a fear of himself. So let's look at that real quick. Let's go back to 34, verse 4. David writes, I sought the Lord and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. So he's describing all these fears. He has all these concerns, all these burdens, all these anxieties, all these cares that are just going to characterize us as we live life. And David experienced those, and he looked to the Lord. He sought the Lord. The Lord answered him so that he could deliver him from all those fears. Now, verse 7. The angel of the Lord... The angel of the Lord. Now, in what we've been doing in Mark, that suddenly brings on a really significant nuance, doesn't it? The messenger of the covenant who will be the seed of David in the future as he writes this, who now, as we stand, 3,000 years after David, we see 2,000 years after Christ. This is Christ. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now, there's a way that that applies to all of us, but it, it is explicitly true of David, who has the seed promise, who the angel of the Lord is, I guarantee you, going to bring him and his lineage to the throne in safety to prepare for his own human birth. Verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's no one more blessed than the human being who takes refuge in God. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. There's no lack. What do you lack if you have fear of God? Nothing. If you fear God, you don't lack anything. Well, I don't have this. Then you don't need it. There is no lack for those who fear God. Trust me, Christian, this must become 
fundamental, this must become a practical conviction in your daily life. When you carry burdens, when you're walking, here come Tuesday morning, and here comes that dark cloud of faulty thinking, this has to become conviction. If you fear God, you lack nothing. Verse 11, come to me, you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. David's committed to teaching the fear of the Lord and the nation because he sees the value of it, how critical it is. Those are, the incre- those are the critical, critical verses. Now, when you go back and fill in some of those gaps, it even brings greater light. For instance, if we go back to verse 10, and we see what David's doing by comparing those who fear the Lord who lack nothing, he compares that to the young lions. Young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So whatever you lack, it's not a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I don't have it. Then it's not good. God is good. And his goodness is to those who fear him. you want to come to the Lord and you want to find a fear that's going to cancel out and transcend every other fear, you need to taste and see that the Lord is good. You need to do what verse 5 says. You need to look to him. Those who look to him were radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. Spurgeon said of verse 5, their faces were covered with joy but not with blushes. He who trusts in God has no need to be ashamed of his confidence. Time and eternity will both justify his reliance. That's so true. You have nothing to fear. You have nothing to be concerned about. Then in verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste means to perceive. If you're eating food, you, you eat it by literally tasting it with your tongue. To perceive by experience is to taste something experientially. And this is to not put God to the test in the sinful way of putting God to the test, but it's kind of like Malachi says, well, put God to the test and actually tithe. Why don't you actually take him at his word and let him show you his goodness? Testing God, of course, in the sinful way is actually doing something to disobey the Lord, try to put him in a box, as Satan tried to do to Jesus. But God, Malachi says, test God and tithe. Test God and give sacrificially and see what he does. Just do what he says and just test him. You don't test him by sinning against him. You test him by obeying him. Just obey and let's see what happens. That's how you taste and see that the Lord is good. You taste and see how good God is by obeying him, letting the chips fall where they lie, and you are about to see the goodness of God on display. And that's why he says, how blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Do you have sinful fear in your life? Do you have concerns that plague you, cause you anxiety, consuming ambition? Um, your only solution is to see the superior fear of the Lord drown out all other fears. That's your only hope. I remember uh, several years ago, I don't even remember how long ago this was, um, I, I went on a trip to Ukraine. I went twice. I think once was 2007, two, once was 2009. I think it was the 2009 trip. Uh, on one of those trips, I, I, took a, I took a group of students, and we went over to the Ukraine, and on the way back, we were going to stop and see a missionary friend in Geneva who was pastoring a church there in Geneva. And so on the flight, well, there was a flight from uh, Kiev to London, then to Geneva, so we had a quick layover. 
And um, it, the, the flight uh, to Geneva for our, our, for like, we were basically spending about two or three days in Geneva before we, we came home. That flight was on uh, my anniversary. And so on that, I think it was too early or whatever the time zone happened, it was just wasn't, it wasn't going to work for me to call April from Geneva before our, our departure. So we got to London and the time was right. And I did the math. I'm looking at the time zone change. And, you know, she's basically like the middle of the day. It's like perfectly smack dab middle of the day when I'm on this layover in London for her in Florida. So I call. I'm from this payphone, and uh, no answer. Just goes to her voicemail. And um, and and I know that like if it goes to the voicemail, I mean this is like like an international call. I'm just ringing up the charges, you know. I'm just calling on the credit card, and this is getting really dangerous here. So I just hear the voicemail, kind of just hang up, and so I'm like, oh, I've got a, we got an hour and a half layover. I'll call back another half hour. So I call back another half hour. Just goes to voicemail, no answer. I call back right before I get on the flight to Geneva. Just goes straight to the voicemail, no answer. Call her three times in the middle of the day on her cell phone, and she does not pick up the phone. I have the entire flight from London to Geneva to think about that, <laughs> to ponder what could have happened. Oh, I'm just, I'm sure she was just busy. I get to Geneva, we get the, we get the rental car, we drive people out, and we actually had a hotel right there on the outside border of Geneva, actually on, on the French side. So we get our room, we get every, all the students checked in. I go find a phone. I call April's cell phone. And then now, it's, if I do with my math right, it's something like six, 6 or 7 o'clock in the evening. It's like, it should be time for dinner. I mean, you know, she should be uh, just hanging out, eating dinner, waiting for my phone call. So I call her, go straight to her voicemail. I'm like, okay, man, she's just making dinner. I don't know. She doesn't have her phone. So I'll call back in another hour. I call again, go straight to her voicemail. Call before I'm supposed to go to bed, it goes straight to her voicemail. I have the entire flight the next, the next day, I think it was, from Geneva all the way to Florida to think about what's going on. Well, wouldn't, you know, I, I knew, I knew exactly what happened. I mean, there is only one thing that's going to prevent April from picking up her phone on our anniversary. She obviously is dead. <laughs> I knew as I was on that flight, I was anticipating... The Ch Ch Jay Pitts, my pastoral friend, who the administrator of the church, getting delegated the necessity to bring the bad news, come down the jetway to console me. Sorry, John. There was a gas leak. We don't even have gas, but I'm sure there was a gas leak. <laughs> and your boys took up smoking while you were gone and threw their cigarette butt, and they just, every, nothing's left. I had the whole thing played out in my mind, how it was going to go. And I was going to hear about the disaster and the death of my family, and I'm the only survivor, and here I am. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that fascinating, where our minds go? Now, I'll say it this way. It's a tragic racing of the imagination if I think that that's the heart of God to just afflict for no purpose. It's the heart of God to show goodness to his children. He is infinitely good. But then I would also quickly follow it up and just say, apart from the problem of me imagining and presuming that I knew what God was going to do, if he did that, that actually would be my good. Do you fear God enough to say, you know what's good for me, not me? This is a fear that transcends every other fear. And when you fear the Lord, all other fears are canceled out. 
The second truth I want to look at this fear of God, particularly the fear of God because he's good, is it transcends every other fear. And the second thing is that it lasts longer than every other affection. It lasts longer than every other affection. I want to go back to uh, Psalm 103 here for a second. Psalm 103. And I want to look at that verse that we looked at that, that shows us so clearly that his goodness, how it's connected to... Is that right? Yes, there it is. Psalm 103, verse 11. And this shows us how clearly his goodness is connected to fear and that he has infinite compassion on those who fear him. But notice in verse 11, it says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. No, that's actually, I'm not, that's not the psalm I'm looking for. I'm thinking of Psalm 113. I'm all confused here. What am I thinking of? Did we get there? Did I just read the wrong? I'm trying to get to the uh, phrase, oh, yeah, no, sorry, I just didn't read one more verse. I was looking for the east-west comment. There you go, verse 12. Okay, I'll, I've found my senses, I think, hopefully. Verse 12. Next verse, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The metaphor in verse 11 is sometimes, sometimes it overshadows the one in verse 12, but it's interesting. As high as the heavens are above the earth, that's infinite. And the same is true of the east and west, because if you think about the globe, obviously east and west never meet. They just keep going. There's just no, there's no measurement that you can, you can terminate how far that really is. So that means that God's goodness is infinite to those who fear him, as he says in verse 13. His compassion, his goodness, his forgiveness is infinite to those who fear him. There's no extent or limit to his goodness, those who know him, those who take refuge in him, those who fear him, they're unified um, in the singing praises to God for his goodness, not only now, but also in, 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 the, in the coming kingdom. Jeremiah 33, going back to our prophecy, we didn't, we didn't get here, but just listen to the Jeremiah 33, this is where we ended. It continues in verse 10, Thus says the Lord, yet again, there will be heard in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man and without beast. That is in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. Verse 11, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who say, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and of those who bring a thank offering to the house of the Lord. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at first, says the Lord. I mean, this is profound. The nations, the people of God, everyone's going to be unified in praising him because his goodness is so magnanimous. And so that's, the, that's what you see in Psalm 103. That's what you see in uh, Jeremiah 33. And it's eternal. It's never going to end. It's going to be an eternal affection and an eternal virtue um, as described in those prophecies. I want to conclude with just asking you, have you... Have you repented of every competing 
affection. Because if you're gripped by the fear of the Lord, you'll, you'll give up every competing affection. Consider the greatness of God. Consider how good he is. Consider how great his goodness is. Consider how infinite his goodness is. If you look at God through the lens of his goodness, it causes even a greater reaction against the sins and the idols that we would exchange for him. Think about the disgust that our idolatry ought to provoke. Competing affections ought to cause us such intense disgust because we can see that he told us not to go down that road or not to follow that path or not to have that inclination of soul because he loves us and because it's for our good. And then we went against that. And we spurned a God who was that infinitely good to us, and we spurned him. The goodness of God ought to cause us even greater disgust with our idolatry. In light of Psalm 103, verse 5, which says, God satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle, if we believe that, if we believe that, how would our lives be different? Maybe the question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle? When we really believe that, we end up tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. We end up experiencing his goodness. We find all of the competing allegiances and competing fears, competing attractions, competing pursuits, just bitter, empty, disgusting, vile, I am far too often sensitized by my arrogant assessment of what is good when I find myself in a circumstance that I don't believe is the best. Oh, this, this isn't the best. It's not as good as it ought to be. I ought to be infinitely more sensitive to fear the Lord and to believe he knows what's best. We must long to fear God to the point that we would know that whatever comes from fearing God as an outcome, that is our greatest good. Let's close in prayer and thank the Lord for just this study and the opportunity that it's been to, to cause our hearts to fear him more. Lord, thank you for the hunger and the appetite of your people to want to fear you, to want to learn about what it means to fear you and what it, what it means to see the motives of their heart exposed so that we could fear you. Thank you for showing us your goodness, for showing us that your goodness causes the fear of you and that your goodness is also the result of fearing you. I pray, Lord, that we would indeed taste and experience your goodness by fearing you and that we would see the deliverance that comes from fearing you and seeing all other anxieties and fears and concerns dwindle and fall by the wayside. Lord, you're the only true God and your people are the only ones on the face of this planet who know you. And so, in a very real sense, as we saw even in the um, evangelism that's going to happen at a global level when you return, we pray that that would also be true of the church by virtue of our blessing here and now, that uh, the joy that comes from fearing you, the joy that comes from serving you, that trembling in, uh, at the thought of offending you, of being consumed by the desire to please you, that would produce such a profound display of your goodness toward us that the watching world would 
jealously look on from the outside and, and long, if only I could know that God that they know. We pray that a fear of you would produce joy in our own hearts, that a fear of you would produce successful evangelism in our relationships, and that simply by fearing you, we might please you. That is our goal, Lord. There's no greater goal than to please you, and we're just overwhelmed at the fact that by fearing you, we also get our greatest good. That is just infinitely kind on your behalf. So we thank you for it, and we ask that you'd produce greater fear in all of our hearts, that our fear would never be static, but that it would, wherever it's at right now, that it would just grow and begin to grow and continue to grow and grow exponentially by the virtue of the ministry of your word. And Lord, that's our desire. We ask that you would answer that prayer. In your name we pray. Amen.